0: So in the words of Monty Python, and now for something completely different. <laughs> About three weeks ago, there's a psychologist by the name of Jonathan Haidt, who is a professor up at the State University of New York. He wrote, a, he wrote an article that, we'll just say it, stirred the pot with a lot of folks. He was making a critique of where he felt like culture had gone in the last 10 years and though he didn't write the title of his article usually an editor does that it was entitled this why the past 10 years of American life have been uniquely stupid (laughs) I told you stirring the pot and his argument is that there was well-intentioned effort behind the advances of technology to make great strides in bringing us together and helping us to see one another and to do for us what only technology could do. And instead, we find that things are unraveling, that things arguably, and I know it's an arguable argument, arguably are worse for the ways in which technology has sought to make things better. And if you read that article, and you, you, if, you, if you strongly identify with the right or the left, you should bring your catcher's mask because he pulls no punches, you will take it on the jaw. But if I might distill down what is the substance of his argument, it's this. Um, Social scientists have identified at least three major forces that collectively bind together successful democracies. Social capital, which he means by extensive social networks with high levels of trust, strong institutions, and shared stories. Social media has weakened all three. The stuff that we depend on to hold us together, that when those things begin to deteriorate, things begin to fall apart, the center cannot hold, that's bad, and social media, for all of its effort, for all of its promise, has actually contributed to the undoing of things that we never thought imaginable. And so what Haidt is arguing, as an homage to Elvis, wisdom has left the building, and we need to reckon with that. And so he does in the article. So good luck as you read through it. Why do I bring that up? Today we're beginning a short series this summer. We are calling it Easter Egg. Why? What is an Easter Egg? An Easter Egg is actually not just the thing that you go searching for as we did a few Sundays ago. An Easter Egg is a term that's used in film that is a subtle, visible, visual, or audible cue in a work of art that is paying respects to another form of art or another work of whatever case may be. So let me give you some examples. If you ever saw an Alfred Hitchcock film, then there was a moment in that film when you saw Alfred Hitchcock. There's North by Northwest. That's the director, Alfred Hitchcock, getting on the bus. All right. Here's another one. If you launch Raiders of the Lost Ark as he's about to pull out the the Ark from that Bedouin cave, there on one of the hieroglyphs, there in the cave, that, can't see it really well because it's pixelated, that's an etching, a hieroglyph of C-3PO and R2-D2. <laughs> right? That's an homage to Star Wars that uh, Spielberg does to George Lucas. They co-worked on the effort. If you saw Captain America, the Winter Soldier, and you see that Nick Fury died, what? Okay, At the, on the tombstone of Nick Fury is the quote from Ezekiel 25, the path of the righteous man. Well, what is that an Easter egg of? Pulp fiction. Pulp fiction. That's where Samuel L. Jackson gives the speech in Ezekiel. Kids, don't ask to watch that one. Finally, here's the creepiest of the one I'll give you. In Toy Story, which came out in 1995, the carpet, the carpet, the carpet. You know what that's an Easter egg to? The Shining. Yeah, that's in the hotel in The Shining. Mom, can we watch The Shining? No, honey, we cannot watch The Shining because then we'll have to lock up all the axes. Those are Easter eggs. Those are little, subtle cues as a sign of respect to another body of work or another creator of work. Well, we're going to consider an Easter egg in the storyline of the Bible today that is there not just as a sign of respect, but that if you don't reckon with that Easter egg, you actually can't understand Jesus as well as you should. And that Easter egg is the prophet Elijah, who spoke in the 9th century BC, more or less, and his presence and his ministry is referenced to in about six or seven chapters in the books of 1 Kings and 2 Kings. There was a point to our New Testament reading today, because in several places along the way, if you were with us in our study of Mark's gospel, who did you hear references to? Quite often, Elijah. They either compared Jesus with Elijah They think that maybe Jesus even himself says that John the Baptist is a new incarnation of Elijah. Or there on the cross, as he's calling out to God, people are saying, he's calling for Elijah to bring him down from the cross. So look, Elijah is not just a set piece. We need to understand him. He's an Easter egg in the storyline of Jesus. And so, to understand Jesus better, I thought it would be appropriate for us to learn a little bit more about Elijah. But let me kind of make that even more relevant for us. Why Elijah? One, Elijah is speaking into a world which you might say Israel for the last 100 years had been uniquely stupid. Between 1 Kings 1 and 1 Kings 11, the word wisdom or wise is found 23 times. After 1 Kings 11, you will never hear the word wise or wisdom again wisdom had left the building. That sounds familiar. Secondly, Elijah himself is another picture of what it means to follow in the Lord. As we've been trying to figure out what it meant to follow Jesus for nine months in our study of the Gospel of Mark, Elijah will come to us and demonstrate for us both clarity and confusion. He will show us both boldness and weakness. He will show us even a picture of spiritual depression. I think we'll be able to relate. But thirdly, he is in the mix because he is out to show us what it means to follow the Lord, to walk in his way, to find strength in our time of need. And it's particularly in the text that we're going to look at this morning, in which we're going to hear just one thing about Elijah. We're going to consider what does it mean and how does it feel for the Lord to respond to, to the moment in which wisdom has left the building. Friends, as then it is now, it feels increasingly more difficult and obsolete to put your trust in God. How does Elijah help? Elijah is going to help us understand Jesus more and also understand how it means to walk in faith more in a world in which it feels like, well, we'd just rather sleep in on a Sunday morning. We're going to consider how God responds to when wisdom leaves the building under three headings compromises, catastrophes, and a confrontation. Specifically, what are the compromises that we make? What are the catastrophes that follow? And what is the confrontation that we require? Compromises, catastrophes, confrontation. That's where we're going. We're in 1 Kings chapter 16. We'll start in verse 29. I wonder if you could stand. 1 Kings 16, starting in verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had not been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub. According to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun, Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. This is the confrontational word of the Lord. Yeah, you can sit. Do I thank him for that? I don't know. Okay. Look, I have just dropped you into a storyline in the middle of the passage. I have just dropped you into the two towers. (laughs) Where are we? Settle in here. I, I need to kind of bring you up to speed into context. So, the ninth century northern of Israel, you are there. Ready? Here we go. First Kings. It begins with David in his final days. He's still the king, but he's getting old. And now there are people posturing for who will succeed him. And up walks Bathsheba. Remember Bathsheba? Oh boy, do we remember Bathsheba, right? Bathsheba begins to deploy her influence to David to say, you remember what you promised to your son Solomon, right? He would be king. Even the Lord said so. And sure enough, David and a whole host of series of events happens. And sure enough, Solomon succeeds David despite that little hint of palace intrigue, which is its own hint of something cracking at the foundations of the kingdom, even in that moment, that there is a power grab attempt at the beginning of Solomon's reign. Solomon takes the throne. And at that moment, it feels like we are in the clear. Because the first thing Solomon asks of the Lord is not prestige, is not wealth, It's not influence. He asks for one thing. He asks for wisdom. And within just a few paragraphs or a few chapters, Solomon demonstrates that wisdom to great acclaim. He threads the needle on an issue that nobody else could see a solution to. He shows forth the answer to prayer. He is the new incarnation of wisdom, and it's great. Things are starting to click on all 12 cylinders. So then he proceeds to fulfill the promise that was made to him, that he would be the one to build a temple, a house of the Lord. Not David, his father, but he would build a house of the Lord. So he gets a contract with King Tyre of Sidon to bring in the wood to build the place. He bids out the roof, gets a great deal on the roof. The banks come to him and say, we'll give you a low interest rate. And he goes, dude, we're Israelites. We don't do interest. Remember? It's in the law. And the bank says, right, right, 0%, good. You'll get your roof. They build the temple. It's beautiful. It's elaborate. He builds his palace. And then, if you think I preach long, Solomon gives this dedicatory prayer to the temple that goes for two and a half chapters. When's the man going to shut up? He finishes. The the temple is in great shape, and everything is going well, and Solomon has fulfilled the promise, and he's demonstrating wisdom, and everybody feels like this is a pox Israel. And then by chapter 11, it all falls apart. Solomon, it begins with Solomon. He begins to cozy up with no shortage of foreign wives and begins to let into the world a whole competing set of alternative versions of what you might worship. And it says in chapter 11, verse 9, and the Lord was angered with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. Solomon, the one that had been a blessing unto Bathsheba and David by his very birth, the one whom Nathan the prophet had said, you should call him Jedidiah, the one who is blessed of the Lord in addition to calling him Solomon, the one who ascends the throne and shows himself wise and builds the temple to great acclaim, he's the one in which it all falls apart. He proceeds, he ages, he dies. And for his actions... It sets into motion an even greater degree of palace intrigue within the house of Israel, such that within just a short amount of time, the nation is split into two. Ten tribes going to the north, known as Israel by code, and the, and the lower two tribes, known as the, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. If you were with us last year, we talked about in Daniel, when the, when the nations are exiled, That's what's happened. We have a civil war between North and South. And in the North, king after king after king after king seems to be in some sort of race to who can do the worst, a race to the bottom. Israel looks around at itself going, Are these the best candidates we can supply? Until we get to the seventh king of the Omride dynasty, that is the kings that led the northern ten tribes, we get to King Ahab. And you heard what Ahab did, Jer, in the first few verses of our text. And it's not kind in the record to Ahab what he did. In fact, it says Ahab did worse than any of the other kings before him. He acted more wickedly. And why does it say that? What had he done that deserved that kind of characterization? It says this, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sons of Jeroboam. That's the first king of Omri. He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Efbael, king of the Sodionians. Went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah Now, I just read that to you, and you're all saying, "I don't have a clue what he's talking about." That's just could, that might as well be Greek. It's actually Hebrew. Let me help. Let's start with the whole marriage thing. He marries this woman named Jezebel. We all we've heard Jezebel before. There's a, there's a news, there's an online newspaper called Jezebel, right? We're transgressive, right? Jezebel. And what what what's the deal there? Is is this sort of some sort of soft bigotry? Je, Jezebel is the daughter of a of a Gentile pagan king. Sidon is on the northern coast, and what we know according to your history books, you go through Epcot, you see the, the homage to Phoenicians, the Phoenicians that help deal with you know writing and things like that. That's that kingdom. She's a member of that kingdom. So what's the problem here? Is, is this sort of just a sort of a veiled, soft bigotry in the part of the Old Testament towards anybody that's not a Jew? No, here's the deal. Who is she? She's the daughter of a Gentile king named Ethbael. Well that name should start to go, hmm, I wonder where that's coming from. If your name is Ethbael, it might indicate part of where your allegiance is. To Baal! Oh, I get it, right. So she's of the house and lineage of a, of a community that has given their worship to Baal, which is the Canaanite version of Zeus. That's their god, they're sticking with it, he brought him to the dance, they're going to dance with him. So Ahab has married a woman, and it's not just about the woman that he's married, but about the allegiances that she brings into the marriage. Because look, friends, you don't just marry the wife, you marry the family. <laughs> so what does he do? How is it proven to us that, that he really is in it in a way that may be at least at odds a little bit with him being called the king of Israel? Well, he builds a temple to Baal. He builds a temple to Baal. Sorry, can I see your card again? That's us king of Israel, right? You know, Israel that chose Israel, and birthed Israel, and protected Israel, and rescued Israel, and delivered Israel from Egypt, and provided for them in the wilderness. You're the king of Israel, right? Yes. So what's with the temple to Baal? And and what's with this shrine called Asherah? She's She's the counterpart to Zeus, or Baal. She's the fertility goddess. That's why they call her the Asherah. And he's doing both. At this point, you're going, who cares? Why should I matter? Here we go, all right? Let me see if I can narrow it down. What has Ahab done? He has made a compromise. He has sought something that he thinks will be gain, but he has given something over in order to get what he is seeking and before you start to go, well, I never, you have. Let's, let's just unpack his motivation for just a second. What, what did the marriage mean? Like he didn't do anything that kings and queens haven't been doing for as long as there's kings and queens. Why do, why do kings and queens marry outside, not only their family, but in other countries? For the alliances, for the political protection to expand the economic possibilities. For Ahab to marry into a Gentile family, what has he just done? Well, now he's got a political ally on the coast, which has a coastal commercial trade route, so his economic opportunities have just gone through the roof. He's just shorn up his legacy. He's just shorn up Israel. What's so wrong with that? He has gone after something that anybody else in his position would have done. But to do so, he's done so at this cost of his faithfulness to the Lord. Now, let me borrow an analogy. Maybe it doesn't work. You can tell me later. I'm sure you will. Kids, imagine for a minute your parents have been married for like 20 years, all right? And imagine your dad, around the 20th anniversary, he starts to put up pictures in the house of some of his ex girlfriends, right? On the wall there at the piano, there's a screensaver of him and some girl with the baseball cap back and you're both sucking out of the same Coca-Cola, right? And you're going, what are you doing? Right? And dad looks at mom and, and she says, honey, you are still my number one? Well then, what's, what's with this? Apparently we have an issue about allegiances and loyalties and who is your first... Who was your first love? And you would be scandalized by that. Well, Okay, can you feel a little bit on the basis of that awful analogy, awful illustration? Kind of what we're seeing here with Ahab. He's the king of Israel. And still he is deciding to not just put up pictures of Baal, but build a temple. He's made a compromise. Compromises come in many shapes and forms. Not all of them are destructive. Look, most things that happen in any country are the function of political compromises. Parties, they want something. They think it's a good thing. They know that they can't get everything that they want, so they give something up in order to get something in return, and then at least everybody walks away from the debate table with something that they wanted. There's some measure of satisfaction. That's a compromise, and it makes sense. Not all compromises are problematic, but some are and you know it. There are some choices that we make, some efforts that we give ourselves to in which what we give up is more than we ever dreamt of and what we get back is far less than we anticipated. We do that. What Ahab did is built in not just to Ahab, it's built into our humanity. You and I have been making compromises since before we knew how to even pronounce the word. Why do I say that? I listened to a, an interview this week with Andy Crouch. Some of you may know that author. He's written a bunch. He, he's, a, he's somewhere. But he just wrote a book. It's called um, The Life We're Looking For. And the very first sentence of his book is this. Recognition is the first Human quest. Before you even knew what those words meant and the grammar and the way to spell it, you were seeking recognition. When you were doing this, it was a note me. Take note of me. Acknowledge me. Recognize me. I matter. I'm here. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's how we grow. It's how we fill out. It's how we flourish to be recognized. Kids, it's what you're doing. Uh, look, the, the jokes you make, the dares you take, the, the things that are likable that you do to be liked, those are compromises, and, and some of them are really harmless, and others are not. Uh, I don't mean to trivialize it, but like every single animal that you saw hit on the side of the road on your way into church today, that was a compromise. What they were seeking was to be on the other side. And what they gave up was their safety. And in the end, they lost. Compromises is everybody's deal because we're all seeking recognition and we will find any number of means in order to get it. And some of those are less harmful than others and others are worse. And look, kids, you think I'm taking a plot shot at you? Adults just do it better than you. They're just more subtle and we're just better at justifying it. We make compromises. Let me give you an example, okay? It's just an example. It's from a guy named James Mumford. No relation to the band. Although I hear they need a fourth, so maybe he could step in. (laughs) James Mumford is a theologian um, in Oxford. And in an essay I read of his last week, um, he was very frank about his own life and his own family And he says in the article this, in truth, my career has come at the expense of my children. I work all weekend, I'm glued to my phone, I'm never fully present with them. There, but not there. This is because in all honesty, my chief value has been career, not family. Now that's part of an essay, a longer essay about values. And in that moment, he talks about two competing values career, and family. Neither one of those is problematic. But at some point, sometimes one gives out. One gives way. And if one gives way forever, well, there's a compromise. That what you give up in order to get back, you find at the end that your bank account has been overdrawn. And that's what Ahab has done here. And that kind of leads us into... The second part of what I think Ahab is out a reflection of. Not only of the compromises that we make, but of the catastrophes that follow. Now, it feels almost like a side note, because it, it doesn't even mention Ahab, but there, towards the end of the passage, it mentions this dude named Heil of Bethel. I guess he was a developer, definitely in real estate. He was out to rebuild. He was out to rebuild Jericho. Remember Jericho, right? Israel's supposed to move into the land. Uh, Jericho says, forget it, I'm going to taunt you a second time. No, you will not come into our land. And Israel says, fine. So they march around it seven times, and then, poof, walls fall down. End of Jericho, that's the end of Jericho. And at the end of Joshua chapter 6, it says, there will be a curse upon fallen Jericho and a warning. Don't ever try to rebuild it. And if you do, it will cost you, even to the point of your firstborn son. That should sound, that should ring in the ears of Israel. Firstborn son, heard that before. Well, what does Hiel of Bethel do? Apparently he gets authorization from Ahab. Hey, man, Jericho looks promising, could be great, waterfront property in Arizona kind of thing. Let me pick that one up, right? So could I start rebuilding Jericho? And so he does. And what happens? He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sagub. He didn't sacrifice them, but something happened. And before he was done, he lost his eldest and he lost his youngest, in keeping with what Joshua told them. That's a catastrophe. Look, the compromises that Ahab had made, which he then kind of bestowed unto Hiel, that compromise he inherited He'd been inheriting compromise after compromise after compromise from every king that had come before him, from Solomon, his forebear, and from David before that. It goes down the line, downstream. Those compromises have a cumulative effect, in which case you discover something desperate, something traumatic, something catastrophic. What does Jesus say? What does it profit a man if it gains the whole world but loses his own soul. It's a compromise. I want the whole world. Okay, you can try. Guess what you will give up at the expense of it? Was it worth it? It's a catastrophe if you get the whole world and lose your own soul. I, I have never heard that verse put more poetically than in a, in a line from a character in a Mark Helprin novel called Winter's Tale. I've shared it with you a long time ago. He, he said this in Winter's Tale. He said, um, Little men spend their days in pursuit of such things like wealth and fame and possession. I know from experience that at the moment of their deaths, they see their lives shadowed before them like glass. I've seen them die. They fall away as if they have been pushed. And the expressions on their faces are those of the most unbelieving surprise. It's catastrophic. Um, we, we watched C.S. Lewis's biopic on Friday. Boy, if you, if you haven't seen that film, um, have strong coffee when you show up because it will demand a lot from you. <laughs> it's a great film, but it's, whew, stay there. You've heard me mention before one of Lewis's lesser-known articles and essays, but it called about The Inner Ring, that from, the earlier da- from our earliest days, there is something that we are all in pursuit of that we don't even know what we're doing so. And it's this thing called the inner ring that, that that's the group I want to be a part of. That's the ring I would like to be a member of. And you try so hard to get inside of it. That's what you want. And you will make compromises to get in there. And it's in every domain. And, and, the, and the trade-off with that is if the more you try to get in that inner ring, even once you're in it, well, sometimes if you don't get in it, then you just hate yourself. But then once you're in it, you're kind of afraid Like, am I here for real reasons or for flimsy reasons? And gosh, six months ago from now, will I still be in it? And if I'm now out of it, how do I get back in it? And it's this thing. We're all searching for it. And maybe we get in it, but maybe we don't. And it's a cost and it steals from us. And whether you call it a catastrophe or just regret, it still doesn't feel good. Let me bring up James Mumford again who rather than talking about his reality, he wants to take that competing, that competition of values and imagine where it could take him if he follows it. He says, as we heard before, in all honesty, my chief value has been career, not family. Here's the new part. But then I begin to play out the trajectory I'm on. Somewhere down the line, my daughter tells me she hates me, that I was never properly available to her. Or as a teenager, she gets into trouble with the law and says my absence was a cause. Yes, yeah, I'm up for that. Can I be in that? Let me be in that one. It's, it's regret, it's sorrow. And what we see playing out in Ahab's reign is what plays out in every storyline. Catastrophes follow, and they, they follow often the compromises that we're not sensible to in the moment. Now, okay. Um, at this point, you're saying, would you please pull up, Pastor? Because this feels like just one big nosedive into the abyss. I know. If I stopped there, it would be that. But we have to feel that. Because there's one last thing that this passage offers us. We haven't even heard from Elijah yet. I thought the series was about Elijah. Okay, it is. We hear one verse about Elijah. We don't know a thing about him. There's no pedigree. We don't see the write-up about him. We just know he's from Tishbe, wherever that is. It's not on any map. It's from Gilead, which is in a mountainous region on the east side of the Jordan. That's it. And we don't see any prefacing statement. No, you know, let me give you an abstract about what I'm going to say. He just shows up to Ahab and says to Ahab, it's going to be a drought until I say so. What? It's going to be a drought until I say so. And who are you? And then exit stage right goes, Elijah, that's it. No, don't worry, we'll get to more of him soon. But what was that about? Elijah was not being a meteorologist. He was being a theologian. And he was coming to say, judgment is upon the house of Israel. Elijah has come to confront to confront Ahab and Israel's compromises that have led to its catastrophe, that if it doesn't pull up soon, it will be worse. And it's hard to imagine how it could be worse in Israel at that moment. He has come to confront, to bring judgment, not to be a meteorologist. He's come to tell Ahab and Israel to repent, to cut it out, to stop it to go back to your first love and stay there. Why Why a drought? Why not frogs or locusts or some other thing that we're more familiar with? Why a drought? Well, look, uh, a drought happens here. You just go to your irrigation system and everything is fine. But when a drought happens to Israel, people die. But why a drought? What the Lord is doing in that moment is confronting the very inadequacy of the idols that they have embraced. Because who's Baal and who's Asherah? The one who's in charge of all things and the one who's responsible for fertility of the land. So here along comes the Lord and cuts off their confidence in the very things to which they have given an idolatrous allegiance. God confronts us in our idolatries. Look, the nature of idolatry is like an addiction And in built into addiction is this thing in which what you do at first is not enough to give you the same thing the next time. And it becomes its own desperation and its own disappointment. And Elijah, in bringing a word of confrontation, I mean, there may be some of you in this room go, oh, great. Jesus was such a nice guy, and now you've brought out the mean God. It sounds a lot like what, Charles Dawkins, what Richard Dawkins said a while back. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous, proud, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a capriciously malevolent bully. What do you really mean? What do you really think? Who is he to issue these stern, coarse judgments? I want you to hear one last word from James Mumford. Because he's not just a guy writing an essay. In fact, the essay that I've already quoted to you, he was writing from a mental institution. Not where he's the doctor of, but where he's a patient. He struggles with bipolar, he committed himself to the mental institution, and he wrote an essay based on his observations of being treated. And he discovered that in that world, the psychiatric evaluation and the forms of therapy that they had offered would refuse to admit the possibility that there is a right or a wrong, that there's a good or there's an evil. There is only values. What you like, what you have affection for. No right, no wrong. And James Mumford, in his effort to get better, realized that that sort of way of thinking in which judgment is wrong, there is no good or no evil, he wouldn't heal. And so he says quite candidly, I think the psychologists really believe, they've really uncovered the truth of the matter, which is that there are no moral facts, that good and evil are not part of the fabric of the world. How can a psychology wedded to relativism make any sense of this possibility of finding a way to be good again, of moral transformation? What does progress or growth mean if there is no standard of goodness outside ourselves? Kids, at this point, you're going, who cares, what? Let me put it in your terms. There's a phrase that you use, or your friends use, a lot, a lot, and a lot more in the last 10 years. It's this word, don't judge. Don't judge me. And part of that I get it, and it's right. Don't come after me, you don't know me, You you don't know what I'm going through, you don't have a clue, don't critique me, don't give me that kind of feedback, back off. Yeah, okay, fine. For those that don't understand, any kind of is premature and not helpful. But look, if you're in a car and the person who's driving is trying to beat the train before the crossbars come down, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to judge you harshly and quickly. Because if if somebody doesn't, somebody's going to get hurt. So I understand the sentiment underneath, don't judge but realize if you take that idea to its logical conclusion in every single circumstance, you might be doing damage to yourself and to somebody else. So before you start dissing on Elijah for coming after Ahab, because you think, who is he to judge anybody? Who is anybody to judge anybody? Remember, there are some things to which we must give an account. And if we do not, are not accountable to those things, it'll do harm and it will be offensive. What Elijah has come to do in that moment, in the midst of Israel's catastrophe as a consequence of their compromises to confront them in the Lord. And that, for him to say, a drought's coming until I say so, that is a persuasive word. Let's see if Ahab listens. You'll have to stick around for the series. But that act of persuasion is all the more reason why you and I need to hear Elijah in the context of Jesus because in that moment in which Elijah is acting confrontationally God has another card up his sleeve he knows how to confront people and call them to repentance look Jesus shows up and the first thing he says in Mark chapter one was what the kingdom of heaven is near repent and believe the good news he's not talking to kings he's talking to me He's talking to you. He's like Elijah. But he's better than Elijah. You know why? Because in John, he tells two people, From me is living water. And then from a cross, you know what he says? I thirst. He knows about a drought. He knows about a fertility of living water. But he experiences his own drought. A drought from the Lord. A drought not simply to show himself strong like he's an Ironman triathlete. But a drought for the way in which you and I are already compromised. For the compromises we've made. And for the way in which that indicates the very compromised nature of our hearts and he's come to forgive, and he's come to renew. And that's what we call the gospel. He experiences the drought of God in order to bring renewal to the very ones of us who are really good at making compromises that lead to catastrophe. What's the takeaway? For one, I am sending you back to your Lord on this Sabbath day for you to ask him as I have asked him this week, what are the compromises that I am making in real time that I am not really sensible to where it's headed if I don't turn up, pull up? What are the compromises that you're making right now that Jesus would say and Elijah would say, repent, But at the same time that I say that, I also know that there are people in this room, if not my own self, in which there are compromises that I have made that I can't fix. They're already done. What's done is done, and they can't be undone. And the question is, am I cast out? Do I need to wear a scarlet C for the compromises I can't fix? Friends, if the gospel is true, then the compromises that we've made that we cannot fix are covered. And we have a seat at his table, and we are part of his family, and he is calling us to new life even now. He's calling us to repent for the things that we can change, and to trust in a grace that is deeper than our sin on the things that we can't. And somehow he will help us to sift through and know the difference. When wisdom leaves the building, God acts confrontationally, sometimes directly to us, but most profoundly toward his son for the things that we cannot change. Here we go. Let's figure out why Elijah finds his way so much into the story of Jesus. Let's pray. Okay, if that's what we're to do, then I ask that you would give us the courage to do that this afternoon sometime in our day on this day set aside for these sorts of things that we might know love again and grace again and repentance again whatever it might be help us to feel the seriousness of it but even more so to feel the depth of a love that does not change that cannot change because of what you've done for us in your son In the name of Jesus, I pray all these things. Amen.